Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zum Horrifying Classics 2022. Today we are Viewing the long-awaited, for me at least, I hope for all of you as well, 11-22-63 by Stephen King, none other than Stephen King. Um, super excited, this is the last work that we will be reviewing and working with in our Horrifying Classics 2022 series on psychological thrillers. This book is uh, openly not a psychological thriller. However, it has some psychological elements that I think are really noteworthy to look at and to compare with psychological thrillers as a genre. And we will do a separate second episode uh, with the one and only John McDermott, my partner in crime who recommended this book for the series and who Love this, loves this book. He has uh, told me a lot about it um, at various points, so I'm interested to interview him about Stephen King and about uh, the traits that make this book different and set it apart in Stephen King's Au um, and talk about more specific points in the book than I will get to in this particular episode. This is a very, very long book. Uh, if you listened to, uh, on Patreon, our episode on Billy Summers by Stephen King, another extremely long book. Uh, we've done interview episodes and other episodes on, for example, It by Stephen King, um, another super, super long Stephen King book. <laughs> um, so any of these super long Stephen King books, uh, I have to almost lead with the plot summary because it just gets too twisted and too confusing when I start talking about elements within the book and we don't start with it, so let's get into a plot summary. There is an English teacher named Jake, and Jake is a high school English teacher in Maine. Jake goes to a diner. Uh, and the diner owner, his name is Al Templeton, has found essentially a quote-unquote rabbit hole. And this rabbit hole goes back to a specific time in 1958 uh, in the same town, but it's the same day in 1958. Every time you go down to the rabbit hole, there's kind of this reset effect that goes on and effectively uh, Al Templeton has stumbled across a way to travel back in time. Uh, so Al Templeton ends up devising a plan that, uh, since it's 1958, this is before the Kennedy assassination, he should figure out how to assassinate Oswald, Oswald Kennedy's assassinator, <laughs> um, in order to stop the Kennedy assassination from occurring. And 
he thinks that this is the time-changing event that will set the course of world history on a much better foot in the future when he goes back to his own time, which is the 2000s. So I think it's 2011 or something. It's like the early 2000s, 2010, 2011, something like this. So Al Templeton sort of kind of experiments with the rabbit hole. So what he does is he'll go back and he'll change something, right? So he finds a girl who gets paralyzed in a hunting accident and he saves her from getting paralyzed and ends up going back into the future and seeing that she um, maybe didn't lead, lead a totally different life, but she ends up living a normal adult life without getting paralyzed. Same thing, Jake goes into, Jake Epping goes into the rabbit hole and he ends up saving um, some of his former students, family members from getting murdered and in the future everything has changed uh, except sometimes the future doesn't change in the ways that you would hope right so because he changed this big event in the past um, his student ends up getting killed in vietnam and he effectively uh, if he had not been the time traveler would never have met this student who had made him cry and made him kind of change his life in that sense so Al Templeton uh, starts on this journey to make sure, number one, that Oswald was the one who tried to assassinate and eventually did assassinate Kennedy. Um, and so he ends up going to Dallas and Fort Worth and following Oswald through his life sequence, through the time um, between essentially the time that Oswald returns from Russia to the United States until Oswald um, does the deed and or up until around that time because Al Templeton gets very sick. He gets lung cancer and he ends up essentially being forced to come back to his present time because he fears that he's going to die in the past and he's not going to be able to pass on this mission to Jake <laughs> to kill Oswald, which prevents the Kennedy assassination, which in Al's view prevents things like the MLK assassination, prevents a lot of the uh, forthcoming negative events in world history. Um, so essentially, in Al, Templ in Al Templeton's view, uh, Oswald changes everything. And he's not, he's, he's kind of portrayed from Al Templeton's perspective as, you know, a wife beater and kind of this kind of, like small fry in the grand scope of history. So Al Templeton thinks, why not change this one piece, which is Oswald? i.e. kill Oswald, or at least knock him out from being able to assassinate Kennedy so that he can change this very large piece of history. Eventually, uh, Jake 
uh, partly buys into it and partly um, is forced into it because Al Templeton commits suicide. He is in a lot of pain at the end of his life and everything, so he overdoses on pills and kind of forces Jake into this adventure. Going back to 58 and kind of living um, these next years uh, as just a citizen in the past. There's a lot of historical elements, so the kind of for example, Jake has to go and buy, you know, fashions suited for the time, hats and everything like this. Um, the costs of everything was something that I definitely noticed. Uh, the cost of a root beer, you know, the cost of um, the clothes that he's buying. He's able to live really, really well because he um, has a lot of money from Al and from, you know, his, his kind of foreknowledge of the future in terms of sports betting and things like this. So, you know, he's able to live well on very little money compared to today's standards due to inflation, of course, and, you know, the historical elements, like the kinds of cars that he buys, um, I found those to be really, like, interesting, the cars that he ends up falling in love with, the cars that he doesn't like as much, um, the cars that are kind of recurring elements in the book, um, also the different scenery, right? Um, <laughs> Stephen King mentions this in the afterward, but um, Jake kind of uh, positions Dallas as this very miserable place <laughs> in the 1960s and you know whether or not to whatever extent that's true and there's a lot of again like historical um, elements and stories and uh, different landscapes that Stephen King investigates in this novel which I think uh, really add to the sense of authenticity in the sense of uh, Stephen King did a lot of deep research in order to write this novel and you can really tell how much of a labor of love it was and how much work he actually did to present that time, you know, late 50s, early 60s as authentic in the novel. And also I think what's specifically very interesting is Jake's perspective as this outsider from the future um, he represents the reader in that sense, right? Because we also are looking at 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, as I'm sure, um, you know, uh, maybe Stephen King was too, remembering perhaps what the 19, late 1950s and 1960s was like, were like those years. Um, and that like element of surprise, that element of novelty, um, that element of nostalgia for a past that we've never lived through, uh, some of us who are younger. So yeah, those historical elements were really key to the style and the feel of the novel, at least for me as a reader. There is everything in this book that you could ask for, and I think, you know, in Billy Summers as well. Um, you know, it's Billy Summers, I think, is the most similar novel that I've read of Stephen King's to this novel, and I, I will talk about some cross-literary, not cross-literary, cross-Stephen King <laughs> comparisons or connections later in the episode, 
um, that if you if you want it, you've got it in this novel. Um, there's action, oh so much accent action. Um, there's car accidents and crazy. You know, there's the murder scene that I talked about earlier. There's things that go wrong. Um, there's a beating. Um, there's a kind of like a gang interaction where Jake gets beaten with a pipe. Uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of action in this novel, a lot of things that go wrong. One of the sayings of the novel is that the past is obdurate, so of course things are going to try to prevent Jake from changing things. <laughs> there's also romance in this novel. Um, Jake ends up posing, we're kind of developing an alter ego called George Amberson. And George Amerson becomes an English teacher at the high school in a local high school in Jody, Texas. And um, he ends up falling in, falling in love with the new librarian, Sadie. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a touching story. And um, the way that the romance is balanced with the rest of the book, I think is just really, uh, masterfully done and there's you know again there's something for everyone in this book um, and you know there's the sci-fi elements there's a character called the yellow card man who becomes the black card man the orange card man the green card man um, and this is essentially a keeper of time someone who keeps track of the alternate timelines within um, each rabbit hole or each wormhole in the universe. So there's kind of one person assigned to gatekeeping in that sense. And they have a painful and slow demise into insanity um, and into, in some cases, substance abuse and things of this nature. Um, so yeah, these kind of sci-fi um, high fantasy kind of characters are also within um, the realm of this novel, the scope of the novel. I think, you know, when you talk about something as crazy and imaginative and broad as time travel, everything goes, <laughs> right? You know, and um, I think what's really interesting as sort of a denkspiel, like a, a mind game in this novel, is that, you know, everything that Jake changes in the past has a reaction in the present right so um there ends up he ends up i'm gonna spoil i'm gonna give some spoilers now so beware skip like a minute or two ahead if you don't want them um jake ends up being successful in his quest to kill oswald in a preventative attempt to um save Kennedy's life. He does save Kennedy's life. Um, however, Sadie gets killed in the crossfire. Oswald kills her. Um, and yeah, he ends up, he gets like this crazy brain trauma and bodily trauma from getting beat up by this gang leader like a couple, several weeks before uh, trying to stop Oswald, but he ends up stopping Oswald anyway. Nothing will stop him. Um, not even the obdurate past, and um, he ends up going back 
to 2011 or whichever time frame he's actually from and it turns out there's a nuclear catastrophe and like a series of um, natural disasters that have occurred um, or yeah nuclear wars natural disasters everything under the sun the world is basically non-existent um the people that he meets are covered in like sores from the radiation exposure um you know there's just like horrible disease everywhere there's power shortages there's you know terrible rationing um you know just really really bad stuff going on um lack of infrastructure things like this he ends up meeting harry dunning the student that got him kind of into this mess in the first place because he wanted to prevent his family from being murdered. Um, and Harry in this alternate reality kind of explains what has happened. You know, Kennedy didn't end up dying, but then some people got involved in the US presidency who shouldn't have, and then, you know, kind of Vietnam happened, but times 10, and then like nuclear wars started happening. and. Um, you know, even while Jake was still in 1963, there was a big earthquake that happened in California that he had not heard about in the history books and that has not actually occurred um, in history, but because he changed this thing in the world, in this alternate reality that he created essentially, he kind of set everything loose. And the world ends up being like a million times worse and more tragic because of his change, which is, again, unwanted and unexpected uh, occurrence, but nonetheless what Stephen King wrote. And he goes kind of back to the green card man and is like, what, you know, what happened? And the green card man kind of explains more and more about what happens when you go into the rabbit hole which is that you don't actually there isn't just one timeline that is constant and changes with these little changes that you make in the past in fact there are these timelines that start splitting off from one of the from one another and the more kind of that happens the more unstable the reality becomes um, and so the rabbit hole does close after a period um, thankfully, and everything kind of resolves a little bit more than the nuclear warfare ending. But yeah, he, Jake, is conflicted. You know, he has suddenly, after four years, felt more at home in the past. He's conflicted because his the love of his life, Sadie, is in the past. Um, and she has an ex-husband who is crazy and is coming essentially to maim her, to slash her face and horribly scar it for the rest of her life. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to think about in terms of, you know, what can I change? What do I have the power to change? But also knowing that ultimately changing it is going to make the future more and more unstable and the uh, efficacy and I think also ethical questions that Jake has are all in play when he goes back into the rabbit hole for the last time 
Um, he ends up like staying there and just hanging. Like he, <laughs> he watches a movie, you know, buys food and everything. But um, ultimately the realization of the butterfly effect small changes blossoming into huge changes over time um, are enough. You know, that is enough to convince him to go back to his real time. And he ends up in real life finding um, Sadie as an 80-year-old or like a very old woman um, who, yes, did get scarred for life, but also was, um, you know, citizen of the century or something like this he ends up having a dance with her at the party that they throw and jody um he ends up kind of being a wanderer and kind of ostracizing himself because of his crazy time travel experiences um but he ends up finding his way ultimately and i think uh this ending with him going back to jody and finding sadie um, was really effective and it was kind of this like heartwarming piece at the end and especially after having gone through so much right with him being kind of prevented over and over again from changing the past uh, but then prevailing ultimately and then kind of realizing that he didn't want to change the past <laughs> uh, he shouldn't have really but then also um having that kind of chance to rectify this whole journey and so yeah it's kind of an interesting um look into what time travel could be and also kind of i don't want to say in condemnation of time travel but yeah that kind of um cautionary tale uh if you will where jake gets this amazing opportunity to experience something that none of us have experienced um and it ends up going horribly wrong <laughs> um so yeah and this ending with sadie is an alternate ending um stephen king wrote this second ending after the book was first published at the request or idea perhaps or probing maybe of his son so this was not the original ending but it is the ending that is currently in print you can go to the wikipedia page of the novel to find and read about the um, other ending and i'm sure i know stephen king posted this alternate ending at first on his website so i'm sure there's more information uh and other sources about the alternate ending and the changes that were made <laughs> what follows in this podcast is a discussion of elements that i think are most noteworthy or most interesting in the novel and about the novel um, and so these are certainly not comprehensive selections of elements of course uh, I could spend probably days talking about this novel and think about more and more and more complexities and more and more and more interests and elements and things to talk about but I have uh, selected the best of for you all and <laughs> so I hope you enjoy. Let's start with the complexity and scope of the novel. I found this to be the most impressive uh, thing about the novel uh, by far, which is just the scope of it, right? So the amount of information that King had to process, not only about the Kennedy assassination, about Oswald's exact whereabouts, about the um, 
you know, contemporary trends, the contemporary styles of dressing, the language, not only the political language and landscape of each place that he researched, but also the um, uh, stylistic language in terms of, you know, uh, body language, you know, men did not hug, for example, in the later half of the 1950s. That was not considered good um, or appropriate, I should say. And then, you know, uh, gestural things and um, ways of dressing, ways of dancing. Dance plays a huge part uh, in this novel, which I found to be really beautiful um, as just like an expression of connection. Um, Jake took some swing dancing classes and the Glenn Miller tune, um, that recurs throughout the novel called In the Mood. Um, it's just like such a beautiful bridge between times, between spaces, between places and people in the novel. Um, so yeah, I found the scope, you know, just in terms of how much Stephen King had to not only recall <laughs> having lived in that time uh, and having started this novel actually in the early 1970s, um, but also having to kind of learn again you know th that kind of uh culture and be able to communicate that in a succinct and distinct way i found that to be really impressive um again the historical details and accuracy the kennedy assassination is a extremely researched um world event and so i think you know he mentions in his uh afterward or acknowledgement section that he read a pile of books um, as tall as him <laughs> about the Kennedy assassination and I believe it you know there's just like so many Verschwörungstheorien um, theories that conspiracy theories um, so yeah there's so many conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination there's like all of these different facts and uh, perspectives on it and everything you know and so I think those are all addressed and grappled with in a really detailed and interesting way in the novel. Um, and, you know, Al Templeton is kind of the one who fields all of that research um, as a character in the novel. And he concludes that Oswald probably most definitely killed Kennedy and not uh, one of the fringe characters in that whole story. Um, and yeah, Stephen King, we'll talk about this later, but Stephen King kind of addresses in the afterward the accuracy versus the things that he changed with regard to the history. I also think that the emotional complexity, still talking about scope, within this first-person narrator was really well handled and it was really tasteful in the novel in the sense that you know, it's one man, Jay Gapping, who, who's an English teacher, of all things, who, um, you know, goes in and has to deal with kind of like the psychological damage of having to travel through time um, and kind of what that does to him. And he is, you know, constantly kind of ostracized in, in that time period and you know, the things that he says, he accidentally sings a song from the Rolling Stones that has not uh, happened yet, you know? 
there's just there's a lot of factors psychologically that this one person has to navigate um especially considering the multiple uh different futures that he gets to see and that he builds like that's a lot for one person to handle and i think that stephen king does a good job of representing that within the first person narration um also just like the grit that this guy has really uh impressed me he just will not give up like even a brain injury will not prevent this guy from completing the mission he is seeking to complete which i just found i found it impressive and i found it kind of this um very optimistic view of, of humanity and of this character um and again like this in terms of the scope it is this this novel is this greater thought experiment of time travel what are the implications of it what are the results what would the results be of it how would it feel you know as a person who gets to travel back in time you know what changes what doesn't change why what are the mechanics of it like i think these are the things that are ultimately um you know some of it is kind of left ambiguous but i think it's thought through in a really interesting way with the yellow green orange black card man or i guess men there's two of them <laughs> but yeah no i think that, you know, in terms of scope, that's another really impressive element. <laughs> the second theme I wanted to talk about was a theme that Stephen King calls harmonics in the novel. There's a kind of... There's a few sayings that Jake Epping adopts during his travel back in time. The first is, the past is obdurate. <laughs> and that means, uh, and here's the second saying, the past does not want to change. Um, you know, another saying, the third one, the past harmonizes with itself. So it's, it's this kind of sense and also this evidence that Jake accumulates throughout the novel that... Not only does the past put barriers in place when people go back and try to change it, um, but there's also this kind of creepy, partly creepy and partly beautiful way that the past connects with itself and the past repeats itself and, you know, names, places, people, feelings, concepts, um, they all repeat in this really, again, like harmonious is the best way to put it, I think, um, parallel and beautiful way in the novel um, and in, in Jake's experience. There are tons, tons of repeating symbols and um, various tropes in the novel. For example, this swing dance uh, to In the Mood by Glenn Miller. That record plays all the time in the novel, <laughs> seemingly. You know, there's um, times when kids are dancing to it. There's times when he dances to it with Sadie. He danced to it with his own ex-wife in real life. Um, they met at a swing dancing class. Uh, other symbols that repeat cars, certain types of cars to mean certain types of people or events. Um, 
just like bad husbands. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. You know, um, Harry Dunning's father, bad dude, ended up, you know, murdering half, uh, most of his family. And then um, the husband, the ex-husband of Sadie, bad dude, you know, Oswald, bad dude. Like there's just kind of these like recurring um, neglectful and abusive husband figures in the novel. There's this very um, tautological mafia scene in the novel or this like mafia presence I suppose in the novel where Jake makes most of his money with sports bets because he knows the future, he knows how these games are gonna go. Um, and yeah, he ends up meeting kind of repeating figures um, in the sports betting scene, getting in trouble at one point with them. Certain guns, you know, the gun that Oswald eventually um, uses to kill Kennedy, the gun that Jake buys multiple times in the past, you know, just like really uh, different weapons that he has access to, clothes that he has access to, all of these kinds of things. Names repeat a ton. Um, the name Dunning is also repeated in, um, in Sadie's case, and then uh, places. Dallas being a, a big, you know, major player in this repetitive cycle, but also a main city in Maine called Derry, which you might uh, recognize from one of Stephen King's other massive and hugely well-known novels, It. Um, but in, in this kind of, I'm going to take a step out here and talk about a broader perspective. I really thought that the this kind of sense of harmonics and the amount of repeating elements or recurring elements in the novel, I thought it was really this like beautiful greater metaphor for life that like things are going to show up again and again and things are going to repeat um, and that's okay. There's this kind of like conscious acceptance that Jake falls into that of course the past is just going to keep throwing these same similar elements at me and you know, he recognizes them and he deals with them as they come. And it is this like beautiful metaphor for the way, the way that time passes, the way that life goes, um, that I found to be uh, remarkably philosophical in the book. I've alluded to it before. Let's talk about Stephen King's afterward and acknowledgments. I did read the audiobook version of this book. The person who read the audiobook did an amazing job. <laughs> so like the main audiobook out there, amazing job. Um, I was super impressed. Um, Stephen King read the afterword and acknowledgements portion himself. Um, and I found that noteworthy because he's kind of with these bigger works. Um, it, especially, you know, this novel, uh, Carrie, it seems, at least to me as a consumer, that he's taken a step back from those works. Um, as in, like, his name is on them, he is their representative and so forth, but, you know, he lets the further artistic productions of his works or further artistic uh, representations of his works kind of up to the professionals in that sense. So, like, 
the audiobook is read by a professional, the movies and shows and whatever are done by a professional, all that. Um, so yeah, I, I found it to be really interesting and I think also insightful to hear about the conception of the book from him, like himself and the way that he inflected and the way that he read um, this portion of the book was really interesting to me. You really, as a reader, I really at least, got a backstory um, and a sense behind what it took for Stephen King to create such a book. As I mentioned earlier, he started to prepare for this book in the early 1970s, I believe he said 1972, and it was too close to the event itself for him to really have the information or get the information he needed in order to uh, finish the book and to do it well. So he put it on the back burner um, until he actually did finish writing it um, many, many years later. Um, and by, you know, again, by that point, he had read books in a pile as tall as himself, you know, and he talks a lot about the team of people behind uh, the research and uh, helping him get the information he needed to write the novel, which I found was interesting. He toured the places that he ended up um, going to and, and writing about, and yeah, yeah it was... Uh, really interesting. So he ended up like touring a lot of Dallas and getting a historical perspective of what Dallas was like in the 1960s. And he was kind of like, a lot of people have criticized the way that I've portrayed Dallas. Um, but, you know, I honestly <laughs> didn't portray it harshly enough. <laughs> it was kind of the sense that I got from him. Um, you know, he talks about the alternate ending and how his son helped him out with that. Um, he talks about the different historical changes that he made and the historical things that he kept the same. Um, in short, he kept things largely the same and changed only a few details, which I thought was really impressive. And again, interesting. Um, so yeah, I found that afterward acknowledgement section to be uh, really insightful about the book and it really added to my experience as a reader having kind of finished this massive work and this big feat. Um, it was a really nice way to conclude my reading of the novel and I would always, always, always recommend reading an introduction, reading a foreword, reading an afterword or acknowledgements portion because I think they can be hugely insightful to your reading of a text. And last but not least, let's talk about some cross-textual comparisons. Of course, I'll start with Billy Summers. Billy Summers uh, is a recently, I believe, 2020 published. I'm, I'm thinking July, July, August 2020, something like this. A novel by Stephen King about a paid assassin who ends up taking on multiple identities and he has a similar kind of travel, not in time, of course, but um, kind of, it, he has, he's a similar character in many ways, actually, to Jake Epping, and he also ends up writing a novel, as many, many Stephen King characters do, um, but the way that he writes the novel that he's writing is kind of similar to the way that Jake writes his novel. Jake is writing his novel, he's right, he, write, he writes two novels, he is the author of the text that we read in 112263, and 
he is writing kind of a fake or decoy novel um, as part of his gig as a, an English teacher who's writing a novel on the side. Um, and then Billy Summers is writing a novel as part of his cover story for the hit that he is trying to take. Um, it reminds me of Misery in that sense too. In Misery, the main character ha is is like kidnapped and trapped in this insane woman's house and he uh, she's forcing him to write a novel. So that sounds, yeah. Uh, a lot of characters in Stephen King books end up becoming authors themselves, whether they're already authors or they're forced to be authors or they find, you know, writing novels um, serendipitously. It is a theme across a lot of King's work. Also, it, you know, like Dairy Main, <laughs> features prominently in this book. Um, there's recurring characters that are in both this book and it. Um, there is a scene with the clown uh, from it in this novel as well, where the clown like is kind of beckoning uh, Jake into the storm drain, um, from the storm drain. Um, you know, Georgie, the little uh, boy in the beginning of it who's killed, um, you know, a lot of the like child kidnappings and child murders are also um, expounded upon. I thought that the way that it was treated in this book was a really uh, good exploration of the novel after um, he wrote it because it was kind of this like bird's eye perspective um, and also this more like objective like fact 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 kind of um, review of the novel which I found to be really interesting and it was almost like it became kind of like a, a crime novel style instead of this like crazy like horror <laughs> written book um and i thought that you know the elements that he does include um that are the same as it i thought that they were really immersive um and integrated well into the novel um you know something i think that was similar in style in some ways. It's a book that I actually haven't read, so this is maybe something I can talk to, uh, talk about with John, um, which is the book that he started writing in place of this book in 1972 uh, was The Dome. And so I'm wondering, is there a similar stylistic tendency in The Dome as this novel? I'm not sure how much stylistic adaptation Stephen King made from his first uh, conceptions of the book. I imagine there were some changes, I'm sure some very substantial changes, if not many substantial changes. Uh, but this is my maybe, um, my guess is that there are some similarities, whether stylistic or conceptual between the dome and this novel. Jake Epping is not from Maine per se, but he is a teacher in Maine and you know that way it's kind of like following Stephen King's own journey as an English teacher turned writer um, and there's a lot of Maine regionalism so I was surprised to find so much of Texas in here um, kind of reminds me of The Shining in that way The Shining Misery also 
um, but The Shining and Misery kind of take a step back from Maine, <laughs> which is like Stephen King's main regional location that he loves to write about and he loves to use as a setting. So outside of that, there are more cross-textual comparisons that I've sure, I'm sure I've missed, but from the books that I've read from Stephen King at least, those are the most um, prominent, the books that stand out the most to me in terms of cross-textual comparisons. Um, overall, this was a fantastic book. I would highly recommend uh, reading it to anyone. I think it's interesting and uh, impressive and... Uh, a really beautiful take on not only this historical event, but on time travel itself and on uh, the ways that the past creates a relationship with us. Um, and yeah, again, I'd recommend reading it. I would recommend the audiobook, but I also think there's enough interest and enough creativity here that the book book wouldn't uh, stymie your progress too much. I don't think it I think it would keep you reading and keep you turning the pages as opposed to being very slow. So thank you for listening, and this is our last new book of Horrifying Classics, so I hope you enjoyed the Horrifying Classics series, and I will see you next time. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.